We're in Torah portion Pinchas. Now this is in English Phineas. Phineas, not Phineas and Ferb. Phineas. Now it starts in the book of Numbers and in chapter number 25 and in verse 10. So Numbers 25:10 is where this week's Torah portion starts. There are 54 Torah portions. So remember, the Torah is divided into 54 sections. We're on number 41 of the reading cycle. Number 41. Okay, this is 25. Yeah, Numbers 25 and starting in verse 10. Numbers 25, 10. Now, two years ago, I taught on this Torah portion. And I taught with the theme of how sin enters the camp. And I don't normally plug my teachings, but this was very foundational for me to teach on this topic, how sin gets in the camp. Because this week's Torah portion is all about sin entering into the camp and infecting the camp. Um, If you find the time this week, I really do recommend going back and listening to this. And especially if you're a man in the room, go back and listen to this from two years ago. Um, But you can find it by going to Podbean. If you just Google Podbean Dothan Messianic Fellowship, how sin gets in the camp. Or you can just take a picture of this and find it that way. But that was a very foundational teaching. And and I like that now I have about three years worth of teaching on every Torah portion. So I can go back and I can reference these and you can reference them as well. Um, This is an outline of this week's Torah portion. We're not going to get through all of this, but I'd like to at least give you kind of a cursory familiarity with it. Numbers 25, it starts with the zeal of Pinchas. Pinchas. And then numbers 26, we're going to start a counting of the new generation after Pinchas. Then number 27, the daughters of uh, Zelophehad. Now, these are the ladies who came to Moses, right? And they're like, our husbands died because they were associated with Korach and his rebellion. Do we still get an inheritance, right? And they settled that dispute. And then, Numbers 27, Joshua is appointed as Moses' successor. You might not realize it, but Moses is going to, he's going to die in this week's Torah portion. So it's it's not, it's not exactly in chronological order, but then Moses is going to appoint Joshua as a successor. And then, in Numbers 28-29, we go through the appointed offerings and sacrifices for the different holy days, okay? So that's kind of a quick overview of this week's Torah portion. Well, let's read a little bit from Numbers 25. And Hebrew students in the room, can anybody read this word to me that's up on the screen? Kana. Did you? I think you read it. Wow, good job. Young, you read it. Kana. Kana. And, and it means, we're going to see it in, in this, this reading that we're about to do. It means zeal or it means jealousy. Like, how can it mean both? We'll see. You know, we'll see how they're connected in a second. But... You know, if I'm walking through the grocery store and a man begins to, to check Stacy out, I'm not talking about the cash register, like he's checking her out, right? And I look at him like, what are you doing? You know, like, and I step up, I'm like, can you, can you quit looking at my wife like that? Right? You know, I'm willing to fight this guy, right? It's my wife, man. Don't talk to my wife. Don't look at my wife like that, right? That's, that's jealousy, right? But isn't it also zeal? I have a zeal for my wife. And, and if you do something to, to try to infringe on that, 
it's going to provoke in me, that zeal that's in me, kind of dormant in me, is going to liven up, isn't it? And turn into jealousy. You see how they're kind of connected? And then Stacy is like, wow, calm down, Gabe, calm down, right? But Stacy also is like, wow, wow, he's, he really has zeal for me. You know, just kind of like, kind of a compliment. Oh, he's willing to stick up for me. Wow, it's good to see some zeal come out of my husband that he has for me, right? He's got fight in him. I, I kind of like that, you know? But, you know, I don't, I don't like being checked out by another man, but man, it's, it's good to see that my husband has passion like that, right? It kind of goes both ways. But that's kana. That's the idea, the biblical concept of kana. Now, I'm going to trick you all and go to Numbers 25, verse 1 now. We're going to go into last week's Torah portion because that's where the story begins. So go there, Numbers 25, 1, and read along with me. Israel stayed at Shittim, and there the people began whoring with the women of Moab. Everybody say, oh. These women were invited, they invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, where the people ate and bowed down to their gods. With Israel, thus they joined to Baal Peor. Now that word paor, it's the idea of exposed or naked, okay? This was a, a, a god of, of uh, promiscuity, a god of nakedness, okay? The, so, so the anger of Adonai blazed up against Israel. Now that's kind of the course of things. Humans, as we throw off the fear of our creator, as we throw off the recognition of his sovereignty, we get more and more okay with exposing our own physical nakedness, don't we? Think about that. Like if you look at uh, like a, a swimsuits, let's just say, in the past hundred years, we get more and more. The further we get, far, far, the farther we get from fearing our Creator, the more okay we are, and the less shame we have about exposing our body parts. In many places. You go to the beach, and it's simply just because there's a law that says you cannot expose that body part, that people cover that body part. In other words, if that law wasn't there, they would expose that body part. Why? Because it's a lack of shame. It's a lack of fear. So there's a pr proportional relationship between the fear and respect of our creator and our desire to want to show modesty, physical modesty, okay? It's very important. So Adonai said to Moshe, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them facing the sun before Adonai so that the raging fury of Adonai will turn away from Israel. Moshe said to the judges of Israel, each of you is to put to death those in his tribe who have joined themselves with Baal Peor. And just then in the sight of Moshe and the whole community of Israel, as they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, a man from Israel came by bringing to his family a woman from Midian. When Pincus, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron the Cohen, saw it, he got up from the middle of the crowd. He took a spear in his hand, and he pursued the man from Israel right into the inner part of the tent, which it's presumed that they were going into the tent of meeting to have sex, where he thrust his spear through the both of them, the man from Israel and the woman through her stomach. Thus was the plague among the people of Israel stopped. Nevertheless, 24,000 died in the plague. 
So that's where we stop. So pretend now you lived 2,000 years ago and you don't have your own personal copy of the Bible. Where do you go to hear the Torah read? You go to your local synagogue. So the Torah gets read in the synagogue, Torah portion by Torah portion by Torah portion. And then the Torah portion that we're on last week ended right there. Think about that. Let's say you're a 12 year old and you just read that story and it stops. And it isn't gonna be for another week that you make the journey back into the local synagogue and hear the next part of the story. What are you thinking throughout the week, you suppose? Yeah. I'm thinking about the zeal of Pinkas. Yeah, you're thinking about the zeal of Pinkas. You better watch your behavior. Better watch your behavior. You're for a holy God. Yeah. Would anybody be thinking, was that justified? Would anybody be thinking, was that the right thing to do? You know, just like with the story of Belak and Bilam, we had to think a little while about, and we had to, had to wait a little while to decide and to find out, was Bilam okay? Was he a good dude? And it wasn't until Numbers 30, remember, that we learned that Bilam was not, right? He led the people into sexual sin and perversion. But we had to wait a long time to find that out. Before then, we were kind of confused. We were wondering, we gotta keep an eye on this guy. Or maybe we don't. And I think the same thing is kind of the, the essence of Pinchas. It's like, we have, to wait a, we have to wait a week to figure out, did God want Pinchas to do that? Was that okay? Was that godly zeal? Well, here, let's find out. Let's fast forward a week and find out. Verse 10, now we're in this week's Torah portion. So you come back to the synagogue a week later, having thought about it, having pondered on this story. And Adonai said to Moshe, Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the Kohen, has deflected my anger from the people of Israel by being as zealous as I am, so that I did not destroy them in my own kana, my own zeal. Therefore say, I am giving him a covenant of shalom, a brit shalom, making a covenant with him and his descendants after him, that the office of Kohen will be theirs until Jesus dies on the cross. Forever. This is because he was full of Cana on behalf of his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Wait, how did he make atonement? So people dying makes atonement? Yeah, the idea of substitutionary atonement, of a, an, of a human being's dying for other human beings' sin, is all through the Torah. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's all through the Torah. So the name of the man from Israel who was killed, put to death with the woman from Midian was Zimri, the son of Salu, leader of one of the clans from the tribe of Shimon. The name of the woman from Midian who was killed was Kozbi, the daughter of Sur, and he was head of the people in one of the clans of Midian. So this was more, this was like a political union between two clans. Think about that. So Adonai said to Moshe, treat the Midianim as enemies and attack them because they are treating you as enemies by the trickery they use to deceive you at the Peor incident on and in the affair of their sister Kosbi, the daughter of a leader from Midian, the woman who was killed on the day of the plague in the Peor incident after the plague. 
So again, we have like this one week break where we kind of have to ask ourselves in the middle of the story, what's better to have no zeal or misappropriated zeal? What do you guys think? What is better to have no zeal or to have misappropriated zeal? <laughs> it reminds me of uh, one of the disciples of our master who, who, when you say zeal, when you say passion, who comes to mind? I heard Helen, that was on my mind. Peter and Judas, yeah. Peter was a man full of passion, right? And sometimes that got him in trouble. Sometimes Yeshua had to be like, calm down, man, right? But then man, think about what Peter did in terms of, like we, would we be sitting here if it weren't for the passion of Peter, for his zeal for the kingdom, right? I think that's a good play. I think it's better to have misappropriated zeal than to not have zeal at all. Because God can always straighten us out and he can use that zeal and reappropriate it for the good things. So, this is what that looked like. This looks like in Hebrew. Now, this is verse, uh, this is verse 12. So go to verse 12. And I'll read a little bit in Hebrew. And if you're one of my Hebrew students, follow along. We're going to pick up right there. This is what it, kind of what it looks like in a Torah scroll. But you see right here, Hineni. So like, behold, Natan, I'm giving Loet Briti. A briti, a covenant, shalom, a covenant of peace. Now, what do you notice about the word shalom? Patrick, what do you notice? Yeah, it's got a letter in there. And if you're sitting in the back row, you cannot see probably. But this is the letter Vav. Now, i got to zoom in here of the picture of the, of the word shalom. Shin, Lamed, Vav, final men. Now, this Vav is an incorrect vav. It shouldn't look like that. It should be one whole piece. And in every Torah scroll around the world for thousands of years, that word and that verse, that letter has been written just like that. Why? It's like a double rainbow. What does it mean? Hmm. Well, let's unpack the word vav or the letter vav. What, what number letter is the, is the letter Vav in the Hebrew alphabet? Yeah, so we can look up here. Look at the, the Torah cabinet, starting right here. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav. So that's what? How many, Joy? Six. Six letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the letter Vav. What day were human beings created? The sixth day. The sixth day. Yeah, so the, the, the letter Vav has its connection to man. Man, okay? So we embody this idea of being a Vav. We even look like Vavs, right? So what can we unpackage from this then? Why has it been written like this for thousands of years? And why has every scribe decided to, well, I'm not going to connect the Vav. I'm going to keep it separate. There's a lot of commentary on this, a lot of connections. So, so far, we have Vav means man. It's the idea of a man. But there's broken, brokenness in this man. Within the word peace. Yeah, I saw your hand. Oh, uh, I don't know if maybe it had something to do with man not being able to keep this part of the code. Perhaps man not being able to keep the, like, we're broken, maybe we broke peace. Yeah. We would have God come down in the form of man and be broken for us so that we can be restored back to the covenant of shalom. 
Mm, beautiful. Yeah, there's the gospel, right? Yes, yes. The gospel right inside this word shalom is that God, God would take on flesh and he would dwell among men. And that he would be broken to bring us. Didn't we just sing that in the worship time, right? <laughs> Giving us shalom. There's the gospel just right there in that one word in the Torah. Isn't that beautiful? Well, here, I'll, I'll prove it even further. Isaiah 9, 6. It says, Yo'etz el gibor. Now, that's that um, mighty, you know, we say the gibor Adonai, that prayer we just prayed. Mighty aviad, eternal. Okay, so, so um, he's, a, he's a, a wonderful, he's like a counselor. He's a mighty, uh, eternal father, aviad. He's, he's father for all time, literally. And he'll be called the Sar Shalom. He'll be called the Prince of Peace. Who is this talking about in Isaiah 9? Yeshua. It's the Mashiach. Yeah, and we know him as Yeshua, right? But he'll be called uh, like a great counselor, a wonderful counselor, an eternal father, and the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. So... Amos 9, and I want to connect a couple things for you quick. If you go to Amos 9, verse 13, I'm going to have somebody turn that while I go to a different verse. Can somebody go to Amos 9 and read verses 13 to 15? Amos 9. Amos 9, 13 Yeah, you got it? Are you, are you willing to come up here and read it in the microphone? No, it's not okay. No. <laughs> Amos 9, 13 through 15. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the, tra and the traitor of grapes, and the traitor of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Mm, beautiful. What is that talking about? It's talking about the Messianic era, right? Men won't learn how to make war anymore. And that this symbol of joy, wine, will be dripping from the hills of Samaria, of Israel, right? And then no one will displace Israel anymore. So there's this connection between wine, a symbol of joy, a symbol of celebration, and the coming of Messiah. And then he's a prince of peace, and he's like a broken vav bringing shalom. What was Yeshua's first miracle? Go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Now it says, on the third day, in John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding. Now when you hear the word wedding, you should think the coming kingdom. The wedding supper of the Lamb, right? There was a wedding in a town called what? Cana. Wait a second. What is the word for zeal? Cana. Is this a coincidence? Let's find out. In the Galil. And the mother of Yeshua was there. 
Yeshua too was invited to the wedding along with his Talmudim. The wine ran out and Yeshua's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now this is all talking, this is all symbolic here. This, ha- this happened literally, don't get me wrong, but this is, there's a lot of symbolism going on here, isn't there? Yeshua replied, mother, why should you concern that with me or you? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, how many jars? Six jars. What is the number of the Vav? Six. What's the number of man? Yeah. What day of creation were we created on? Yeah. What's the symbol of joy? The symbol of the kingdom? Wine. And what's the Hebrew word for zeal? Kanah. Where did Yeshua do his first miracle? Kanah. Do you see what's going on here? He's giving us, like when you go to Sam's and they're giving out free samples, right? Now, did the free samples, are they supposed to fill you up? Are they supposed to make you so full that you don't want to buy anything? What are free samples supposed to do? They're supposed to make you salivate and say, oh, I need that right now. Get in my cart, get in my cart, right? That's what a free sample is supposed to do. What's going on in John 2 is Yeshua is saying, ah, you want a taste of the wine from Amos chapter 9? You want a taste of wine of the kingdom? A taste of the peace that will be the kingdom. Remember, what did the, what did the attendant say? He said, this is the best wine. He's brought it. He saved the best for last. This is not your ordinary wine. He's saying, let me give you a little free sample so that you will salivate for the coming kingdom. Because I am the prince of peace. I'm going to be broken to bring you shalom. So the Prince of Peace had to be broken to bring us peace. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember you... Gentiles by birth, your former state, called the uncircumcised by those who merely because of an operation in their flesh are called the circumcised. At that time, you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope and without God. But now, you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of Messiah's blood. For he himself is our shalom. He has made us both one and has broken down the wall that divides us. Do you see what Paul's doing there? Maybe Paul's talking about this shalom right here. Maybe Paul's realizing that Yeshua embodies the broken vav, the broken man who brought us peace. What do you think? Shalom must pass through brokenness. And this is hard to grapple with because our culture teaches that you should never be broken. Our culture teaches that you should never be poor of spirit or contrite. Right? Our culture teaches you should be anything but. But God can really only use a broken person. Think about that. So in order to be used as an instrument in the hands of God, you first have to be completely defiant to what our culture is telling you to do. 
and how it, your culture is telling you to how to live. Think about that. To be broken. Um, I've got a question, and I'm doing okay on time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna proceed with this. But I was researching. I'm gonna be when we finish up this year's Torah cycle. I'm going to be starting a teaching series on the book of Acts. And I love history. I love biblical history. And when I'm researching for the book of Acts, this some of the stuff I'm kind of coming across. I'm, I'm giving you guys a little bit of a sampling of it. But there's this question that Mark Twain asked in a letter that he wrote called Concerning the Jews. Now, if you don't know who Mark Twain is, sorry, you have to go back and look him up later. But... He, he says this about the Jewish people, and he's writing this from Austria, and he's watching persecution and anti-Semitism rise in Austria, because Austrians are looking for a scapegoat. Uh, you know, that's how it always happens. Blame it on the Jews. They have control over the economy, um, you know, and let's unite the country against the Jews. That's how it always goes. But here's what he says about the situation. He says... He has made a marvelous fight in this world, talking about the Jew, in all the ages, and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman then followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out. And they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What? Mark Twain says, is the secret of his immortality. Mm. I've got a video I want to play you, and the guy answers the question. I hope the sound works okay. Let's see. I think there's going to be an ad parents who are children of parents back, 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 back. Although sometimes we get very self-centered and we see our culture. Let me turn the blind up just a little bit. Of parents who are children of parents back, 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 back. Although sometimes we get very self-centered and we see our mothers and fathers as annoying or worse. Nonetheless, we come from somewhere. Thousands of years back, is there one characteristic that has been with the Jewish people from the day we became a nation three and a half thousand years ago and accompanied us as a people constantly through thick and thin, good times and bad times, through our exile, through every country in the world until this very day as I stand here in front of you. Or, there is not even one constant. If we could find two constant features, then we have to ask the second question. Which one should we credit 
with allowing us to survive. If there's only one feature, logic is probably to attribute it to that feature. So we ask, and we go straight to what would seem the most logical. What keeps a nation together? A homeland, a nationality. We're Americans, those who are Americans. We live in the United States of America. The Canadians among us live in Canada. Yes, yes, we like you, don't worry. And the Brits, the Brits, they live in Britain. It's the homeland, it's the soil of the country that unites us as a people. Perhaps, you know why we survived three and a half thousand years? We were in a unified, cohesive homeland. We lived together in our national homeland, and that kept us. Is that the case? Sadly, for most of our history, 98% of Jews have been exiled from their homeland, dispersed throughout the entire so that doesn't do it. That's not a constant. For the minority of our history, were we in Israel? Till 1948, there were always Jews in Israel, but very few. Most of our history is outside the land of Israel. So you say, okay, it's not a land. Probably this nation had an army. We had an army that always protected us for three and a half thousand years, it defended us, it fought off all aggressors, and that's why we're here. Is that true? Unfortunately, for most of our history, we were defenseless. Thank God today, Israel has a strong army, the IDF, and we pray for them. But unfortunately, for most of our history, we were scattered without any army defending us and protecting us. So you might say, what is the binding factor of Jewish history? Culture, Jewish culture. But if you know anything about Jews, you know that Jewish culture varies from milieu to milieu. Jews basically adopted the culture of their hosts. Some Jews don't even know what gefilte fish is, some Jews don't know what schug is. The culture of Yemenite Jews is not the culture of Ashkenazic Jews. The culture of Iraqi Jews is completely not the culture of German Jews. Culture of Polish Jews, Austrian, is not the culture of Spanish Jews, Sephardic Jews. Different cultures, perhaps it was language. A language holds a people together. Is there one language that all Jews spoke in the past 3,000 years? Absolutely not. Most Jews for most of our history didn't even know Hebrew. They adopted usually the language of their host or a different language, Aramaic. You know much of our prayers are in Aramaic, including the Kaddish, Yiskadal, Yiskadash, Yiddish, or other countries, or other, or other languages, Ladino or the country of our host. Like now I'm speaking in English for a reason. Thank you for the applause, but can you repeat what I said? <laughs> okay, very good, very good. God willing, next year, when you come back, and I'll, speak to you, I'll be able to speak to you in Hebrew, but hopefully you'll be your friends who won't understand Hebrew, so they'll speak in English, and then the year after they'll know Hebrew. But we know that so many of us don't know that language, so it's not the language. So now I ask you a question. Is there one characteristic that has accompanied your people, our people, for the last three and a half thousand years continuously, if it's not a homeland, and not an army, and not a culture, and not a language, and not a particular type of food, 
Is there anything or maybe nothing? If there's nothing, new. If there's 20 things, I have to start researching. But what if I only find one thing and I see that that thing did not exist among any other nation that perished? Wouldn't the skeptic, scientist, objective mind within me start asking, hmm, maybe I have to give that thing more credence than many Jewish leaders Thinkers, professors, scholars, authors, politicians, journalists, pay tribute to. And now I come back to McGill University in 1958. You remember the debate between Arnold Toynbee and Jacob Herzog. First names, please. Very important. Arnold Toynbee, Jacob Herzog. Toynbee says, we're not a nation. We don't need a homeland, we're a religion. Jacob Herzog turns to Professor Toynbee, packed house in McGill, and says, I'm going to tell you a story. Three Olympic airplanes land from heaven in three distinct airports. The first airplane lands in Athens. How many of you have been to Athens? It lands in Athens, in Greece. Out of the plane comes an old man with an impressive demeanor, an impressive beard, pointing upward. And when the airport attendant greets him, he asks this elderly man, what is your name? The man says, my name is Socrates. The airport attendant says, hmm, I have an uncle with a similar name. Maybe you're related to me? He says, I doubt I'm related to you. What brings you here, old man Socrates? Socrates says, what brings me here? You want to know what brings me to Athens? Yes, what brings you here? He says, take me to the Acropolis and you'll see where I conceived and gave birth to Greek philosophy. Where the sages of, the sages of Athens sat and mused about the truths of the world, the truths of the universe. Take me to the Acropolis so I could observe firsthand how Greek philosophy is flourishing. And the man says, the Acropolis? It's in ruins. For $9.50, I can give you a tour through the ruins. He says, the Acropolis is in ruins? Absolutely yes. So tell me, he says, how is the Greek empire doing? He says, Greek empire? What empire? What empire? We're barely struggling to survive. Greece is a tsaris. You know what tsaris is? We have problems, never-ending problems. We don't even realize if we, we don't know if we're going to have a budget. What do you mean? What happened to the Greek empire? He says, we don't have an empire. We have a country called Greece. It's a member of NATO. Socrates says, what in the world is NATO? So he starts giving him a lecture about NATO. He says, is the world saturated with Greek philosophy? He says, I hate to tell you, nobody's really interested in Greek philosophy. I mean, there's a few scholars who still read 
the Republic who are still into Mr. Socrates and Mr. Plato and Mr. Aristotle, but most students are uh, discuss more their iPhones. Socrates says, what's the language you're speaking in? You Don't you speak in the ancient Greek language? He says, no, 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 no. We don't know ancient Greek. Socrates says, can you please tell me, take me? To the temple of Zeus. He says, what's Zeus? The temple of Zeus, the god Zeus. He says, we don't got no god Zeus. So what do you have? Who do you worship? He says, we have the Greek Orthodox Church. He says, what's the Greek Orthodox Church? He says, don't you know about the church? No, Socrates. He says, what's the church? He says, Christianity, Jesus, you don't know these things? No, Socrates says, I don't know about this. I know about Zeus. This is not my Greece. This is not my Athens. I am out of here. He gets back on the Olympic plain and he bids farewell to a glorious past that is no more. A second Olympic airplane lands in Rome, in Italy. An old man, impressive, impressive posture, walks out. You can see he's a statement, he's a statesman and he's fearless. The airport attendant approaches him and says, Welcome to Rome, what is your name? The man says, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Ah, like the Caesar salad. You made the Caesar salad? He says, what Caesar salad? Caesar, the Caesar of Rome. Tell me, how are the Roman Caesars doing? How is the Roman Empire? He says, Mr. Julius, I don't know how to break this to you. But no Caesars already for 1,500 years and no Roman Empire. He says, so what is Rome? Rome is a city. Where? In Italy. What's Italy? It's a country, it's a member of NATO. What's NATO? He gives him the NATO lecture founded in 1946, blah, blah, European Union. Sure. He says, tell me, can you take me to the steps of the Senate? He says, why do you have to go to the steps of the Senate? He says, I have endured a lot of agony on the steps of the Senate. A tu brute, then Caesar falls. I want to revisit it. He says, there's no steps of the Senate. It's destroyed for more than a millennium. He says, take me to the Colosseum. He says, for $8.50, you could see the ruins of the Colosseum. Take me to my gladiators. He says, gladiators, $7.25. You could see the ruins of the gladiators. Take me to my circuses and gymnasiums. They don't exist. So what do you have in Rome? We have the Vatican. He says, how is the Roman Empire doing? Does the world still tremble when they hear the name Rome? He says, I don't know how to break this to you. Rome is just a city. Some tourists come to hear the Pope. He says, what's the Pope? 
Pope is a guy who believes you have to be celibate. In the original text it said celebrate, but he read it as celibate, they don't get married, whatever, he gives him this spill about the Pope. He says, take me, take me to worship the God of Jupiter. He says, there's no God of Jupiter, I told you there's a Pope. Caesar looks at him and says, why aren't you speaking to me in Latin the way I speak to you? He says, sir, Mr. Caesar, nobody speaks Latin anymore. There's a few PhDs who do Latin. We speak other languages. Here we speak Italian and we eat pizza and pasta. You want pizza? I can give you some pizza. And Julius Caesar looks at him and says, this is not my Rome. I'm out of here. He gets on the Olympic plane and he leaves. A third Olympic plane lands. You know in which city? Israel. Tel Aviv. <laughs> ben Gurion Airport. As some of you just landed a little while ago. Israel Inks. <laughs> Me included. But we didn't get the Olympic plane. We got a different plane. Here's an Olympic airplane. Lands in Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. A, fl a, a airport employee runs up the steps. An old man walks out. He looks at the old man and he says two words. What were the two words? Shalom Aleichem. Peace unto you. And the old man gives him a hand and says two words. Aleichem Shalom. Unto you peace. The airport employee looks at him and says, What's your name? Mashimcha. What is your name? And the old man says, My name is Moshe. Moses Moshe. And the airport employee says, Hey, come on, Moshe. My name is also Shalom Aleichem. Moshe, Moshe, give me a hug. You want a lafa? You want lafa? We have lafa here, Moshe. With chips, with flaffle balls. Kharif, yeah, good, good, more, more chips. 19 shekel. <laughs> he says, the airport employee, the airport employee says, says, Moshe, Moshe, where are you from? And the old man says, I'm from Egypt. And the flight employee says, and I am from Tbilisi, Georgia. Tbilisi, I made Aliyah seven months ago, I came here. They already ripped me off, they ripped me off, these Jews. I'm from Tbilisi, you're from Egypt, what? Moshe from Egypt, what brings you here? And Moshe from Egypt says, it's my land. Moshe, have you been here? And Moshe from Egypt says, no. So Moshe from Georgia says, so why do you call it your land? He says, because I dreamt a lot about this land. I worked tirelessly for this land. I made it to the border of this land, but I never entered into the land, but it's my land.
old man Moshe looks at Moshe from Tbilisi and says, forgive me if you don't understand my question. I just have to ask. I came here on an express flight and I realized I forgot something very precious to me. I don't know if you know what it is, but I forgot something that's called talit and tefillin. You think I could find somewhere tefillin? And Moshe from Georgia looks at him and says, who do you think you are? I'm I just put on tefillin here, look. Pulls up his sleeve. You see, I just finished putting on tefillin. You're holier than that. You think you're the only religious guy I also put on tefillin. And now you're already coming from Egypt and you think you're God's gift to humanity. You're the only Orthodox Jew who puts on tefillin. Moshe from Egypt says, you have tefillin. I can borrow them. I'm not Jewish. You're the only Jew. You're pompous. I'm Jew just like you. I'm more Jew than you. I'm from Georgia, you're from Egypt. You're from Morsi's country, I'm from Georgia. From Stalin's country. Moshe says, wow, you have to fill it, yeah. They go off the plane, they come into the airport. Old man Moshe says, you know, I've been fasting now for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm starving. You think they have food? He says, food? 180 restaurants in the Ben-Gurion airport. Moshe says, you don't understand. I don't eat all foods. Forgive me for my question. I eat only kosher. You know what kosher is? The man gets insulted. Here you can, you come. You come from Egypt to Israel. You think you're the only guy who knows what Judaism is. Every store here is kosher and different types of kosher. There's kosher, there's mahadrin, there's mahadrin, minam mahadrin, there's rabbanut, there's right-wing kosher, left-wing kosher, centrist kosher, orthodox kosher, fundamentalist orthodox kosher, Hasidic kosher, meyusharim kosher, barapar kosher. Every type of kosher you have. You have lafa, you have lafa with chips, with onions, without onions, with radish, more kosher, less kosher. And the ice cream? A hundred types of ice cream. One of you will certainly kill you, but they're all kosher. <laughs> Moshe says, you have kosher. He walks into a restaurant to buy something and sees something on the door. He asks his helper from Georgia, what's this on the door? He says, Moshe from Egypt, now you're getting me nervous. An old man like you doesn't know what's on the door. Shame on you. That's a mezuzah. He says, What's on your mezuzah? You don't know. In the mezuzah there's parchment. On the parchment there's ink. Portions of the Bible. What God told Moses. And we kiss it. And Moshe sheds two pearls that stream down from his eyes and look like tears as he puts his hand on the mezuzah and gives it a kiss. And then his friend from Georgia says, and now I'll show you something nice. And he brings him in to a Jewish school. And there's a teacher sitting with children. And he's reading to them in Hebrew these words. And God spoke to Moses saying, 
And Moses smiles. Professor Herzog turns to Professor Toynbee in McGill University. And he says, Professor Toynbee, Socrates, the greatest Greek philosopher who ever lived on one of the greatest minds in human history. Julius Caesar, the most celebrated Roman general, Caesar and states, come back to their native countries. The countries that you call nations, nationalities, the countries upon which you confer the attribute of a homeland. Caesar comes to Rome. Socrates comes to Athens, to Greece. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same faith. They don't share the same lifestyle. They don't worship the same God. They don't have the same rituals. They lack the same culture. They don't have the same interests. They don't have the same convictions, passions, ideals, and values. There's almost nothing of the Greece of today that mirrors the Greece of yesteryear. There's almost nothing in the Rome of today that mirrors the Rome of yesteryear. And yet, you call Greece and Italy authentic nations. Moses comes to Tel Aviv today. The same language, the same faith, the same heritage, the same traditions, rituals, commandments, the same lifestyle, the same culture, the same mitzvot, the same education, the same commandments, the same trends and patterns and values and faith. The same Shabbat, the same mezuzah, the same tefillin, the same kosher, the same Torah of three and a half thousand years ago still there? That's not a nation. Professor Toynbee, if Israel is not a nation, if the Jewish people are not a people, then you, Professor Toynbee, you tell me what is a people? What is it that constitutes a nation? Toynbee was for once in his career silent. This is the answer to Mark Twain's question. There was one feature that accompanied us. What is it? It's called the Torah and its mitzvot. Yiddishkeit. For three and a half thousand years, from New Zealand to Peru, from Russia to Galicia and Hungary, from Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, South Africa, North America, South America, wherever Jews were, good times, bad times, exhilarated times, horrific times. They did not unfortunately have a homeland or a language or an army or a culture, but they preserved and they celebrated the Torah and its daily mitzvot. Day in, day out with self-sacrifice and commitment and they bequeathed it to their children and youngsters and grandchildren with love and dedication. 
wherever they were and under all circumstances. The skeptic scientist, when studying Jewish history and asking Mark Twain's question, what are the ingredients that can explain the mystique of our eternity? And we see there's one thing, namely, one feature that was always there, the Torah and the mitzvahs. Brings, I believe, an objective mind to ask this question, if that is the key ingredient. What is the most important ingredient that we as a people need in order to write the next chapter of Jewish history with pride and dignity and joy? And the answer is, what your students, what you are doing right here today, coming together to study, to explore, to climb the ladder of Jewish wisdom and the celebration of Jewish life. So today, that torch is handed over to you. And we say, go and march on the road of your people, an eternal people. Thank you very much. I thought you did a good job kind of telling that story. So, um, we're going to end part one here. And the next week, I'm going to talk about zeal for the Torah. Because Pinchas acted out of zeal for obedience to God's word, did he not? Now, all around Pinchas at that time, people were committing sexual acts in, the, in a way of worshiping their deity and their gods. But Pinchas goes, no, I know that my God wants there to be none of that. None of that business going on in his temple, in his tabernacle. And that's why to this day, if you were to walk into an Orthodox synagogue, men and women pray separately. And we look at that and we think, oh, that's intense, that's, that's legalistic, or that's chauvinistic. But no, what's going on is they're drawing a line, a boundary, and saying, we're not even going to, in prayer, we're not even going to mix the two genders together. We're not going to cross that boundary. So we're going we're gonna to pick up here next week, and I'm going to talk historically and, and, and emphasize how, how amazing it is that we, in our midst, in our congregation, have a literal Torah scroll. Have, have this, you know, this, this descended ancestor of what this man was talking about and what, why Phineas, why Pinchas do that sphere. We have that in our midst, and do we have zeal for it like Pinchas did? Because like I said at the beginning, it's better for us to have zeal than none at all. And I'm going to leave you with that question. Do you have zeal? Now, I'm going to pose a question before next week's teaching. And it's this. What if after 400 years of not owning a Bible or seeing pages of scripture or hearing the voice of God or, or, or having revelation from several of us in this room received an audible and direct revelation from God? What would you do? Okay, here are some rules, though, that we have to follow. Number one, we have to write these oracles down. God says, you're getting an oracle from me, a revelation from me, you're hearing my voice, I want you to write it down. And we had to publicly read them on a regular basis. We had to study and then teach them to our families. So they couldn't just, we couldn't just write them down and put them, on a, you know, put them in a safe and never pull them out again and expose them to the air. We had to use these oracles. What if uh, we had to observe them and to follow them as a code of conduct for our community? In other words, we all had to hold each other accountable to that. And then what if we had to teach them to other people who have never heard them before? 
So something to ponder throughout your week. What would that look like and how would that play out? All right. Now, as Kiddush is going out, we're going to uh, do a time of Q&A. If you have any questions or comments or answer, or, uh, answers, if you have an answer, that would be great. Any questions or comments? Joy. Jeremiah 6.16? I have to turn there. Do you have it? You just want to go ahead and read now? Go for it. Yeah, find the ancient paths. Yeah. Jeremiah 6, 16. Yeah. There's all the sixes in there, you see? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't catch that. Yeah, good. Yeah. Any other uh, comments or questions? Yeah. Nick. Question. Question about Numbers. Right before we end of Numbers 25. Yeah. It takes time to know the names of two people who are slain. Is there, do you think it makes a difference to that aside from this historical documentation? Yeah, because uh, in that culture, in that setting, it's all about shame and honor. And so what's going on here is people, I think, are being shamed for what they did. So this brought shame on the heads of the people of the tribe of Shimon. And um, really, if you look at Deuteronomy 33, Nick... Shimon's blessing, Simeon's blessing goes away. It's not in Deuteronomy 33, if I remember correctly. And did you know that it does not reappear until Revelation chapter 7? Yeah. So for those who didn't hear, Nick was asking, why does it go through the pains of naming these people? Because in this culture, in this context, a name is everything. And if you bring shame on your family, that's a big deal. Especially, you know, still the case a little bit here in the deep south, you know, it's like, oh, you hang, you, you hang out with them or you're kin to them, you know, and you have this name, you have this legacy and this reputation. It's all the more so in the Near Eastern and Middle Eastern culture. So in Deuteronomy 33, if I remember correctly, uh, Simeon's blessing is absent from this list of blessings on the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words... This descendant of Shimon brought shame on his family, and that's why it lists this, but then it comes back in Revelation chapter 7. He's mentioned, okay? Does that answer your question? That's my theory. Um, also, the tribes of Levi and the tribes of Shimon are always the hothead tribes. Um, so we notice here what two, what two representatives are present. Pinchas is of the tribe of what? Levi. Shimon is of the tribe of... I'm sorry. Uh, um, what's his name? Who's the guy's name? Not Kosby. Zimri. Zimri is of the tribe of Shimon. So you have the two hothead tribes. Who were the two guys who went in and killed all the, uh, the people of Shechem after having them circumcised? Shimon and Levi. After, after Dina, their sister, was raped. Shimon and Levi. They're always the bloodthirsty ones. They're always in time of uh, conflict and turmoil. But that's a theme throughout Scripture, throughout the Torah. But I saw another hand up. Yeah, Joel. I just had a question. I, I often wonder if what he did, 
Yes. Yeah. You smite this corner. Yeah. Also at the end of four portion of Korah, um, God is telling them of the Levites and they're told very sons of Aaron, hey, you you're responsible for what happens in my house. Yeah. So they were essentially giving the sword. Yeah, yeah. The 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 expectation was heightened, you're saying, at the end of Korah. So for them to do this after that is a very big affront, you're saying? Is that do I understand correctly? Yeah. 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 Okay. Any other questions or comments? Yeah. Gene. I've never understood why Pinkus is the only one that reacted. The, the others were just like they were. Yeah. Shocked, I guess. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a couple of years back in that teaching I posted up there, I, I kind of talk about that and how. Um, Immorality is so contagious and becomes so commonplace and normal for the masses that we would just assume sit back and let someone else deal with it many times. And there's a very slim minority of people that will finally get fed up with it and they will act in a zealous way to put a stop to it. Um, but yeah, that's, it usually comes with a lot of criticism from the masses when that happens, it seems like. Yeah, Stacy. Mm-hmm. can be happening, but um, people kind of, like you said, kind of turn into spectators, like, oh, well, maybe they'll deal with it. Yeah. And it's... Yeah, I mean, look at the Holocaust, for instance. Um, many people, civilians, just kind of turned a blind eye to everything that was maybe happening there. And this, a zealous few people stepped up and said, I will break the law to protect the sanctity of human life and innocent human life. Um, I hope that I could be that person and have the courage to be that person as I do some of you. Hope, I hope that you have the courage to be those types of people where you step up and you defend God's honor and his name. But, yeah, Joy? Well, yeah, especially because there's a lot of agendas out there right now that are very vocal agendas. I mean, one just, we got through in the month of June, Pride Month, for instance. It's a very vocal thing. And um, we live in a day and age, and the generation of, like, you young ladies and, you know, like, Wyatt's generation, like, in your generation and your peers... Uh, we live in an age, you live in an age where words equal physical violence. Think about that. When I, when I taught school, you know, it's like I would say to students, you're wrong, but I love you. You're wrong. You know, you're just wrong. And to, that would be like the same as like taking and punching them in the face. We live in an age where you're just kind of expected just to like, just be this like limp noodle and just kind of go along with what everyone's telling you to, to say. And to stand up on your principles is very intolerant and very violent. And that's so incorrect and unfortunate. 
that that create that that erodes the foundation of a civilization. You cannot have a civilization unless you have people who are willing to stand on core absolute principles of truth and morality. Otherwise, your civilization is lost. And we're entering that. So, yeah, Julia. When, uh, when I'm talking about it, I keep seeing it like, um, kind of like where the church is at right now. Definitely, it was a process. So we, it, that we had already read in the scriptures where the men were mixing with these women kind of on the outskirts. Yeah. And so it was a process of, I mean, there's 24,000 people that died in this plague, and more than likely those people were it, you know, part of this yeah. behavior and action. God doesn't typically take out innocent people. Right. <laughs> so uh, all these people acting in it, and even the placement of the tent and the building of the tent, it's like it kept moving towards the inner camp. Yeah. In, in churches now, or you know, in all these believers, you see this infringing, like, it used to be that people left the church and went outside into the world mm. community to, to do these type, sorts of acts, and now it's like streaming in, yeah. where, where you have this horrible, ungodly behavior happening, and they're placing it right in the middle of churches, and yeah. making that the pastors and the leaders, and in that kind of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, it's sometimes it's a slow boil and maybe that answers your question more gene is like in other words this didn't just happen overnight these people it was kind of like this slow gradual reduction of their boundaries and their ethics and their morals and then boom it was like we're there and whoa there's a guy throwing a spear through people and you know it's like how do we get here how do we get to this point and yeah we have to maintain those boundaries we have to constantly keep you know checking and maintaining the fences in our lives and that's one of the things I taught on two years ago in that teaching was fences and boundaries in my own life. Um, and one of the things I, I did mention was smartphones. And I'll just re-echo this real fast that for husbands and wives in the room, if you just play this mental exercise, if I switch phones with my spouse for a day, am I concerned? If so, cut it out. Think about that. Is there something that you've done on here or are doing that would prevent you from being okay with just giving your wife your smartphone and your wife her smartphone? If so, stop. Because that will infect the camp. You catch what I'm saying? That was just one of the points I touched on in that teaching a couple years back. We have to maintain vigilance in terms of boundaries and and um, yeah, Michael, you've had your hand up for so long, and I'm sorry, you're in my peripheral version. Oh, you're going to whisper it. Yeah, thank you, thank you. That wasn't a question, it was a reminder. So, any other questions? Stacey? Let's take a couple more, and I think everybody's hungry. But joy. Okay. Well, my bread's getting more delicious. <laughs> yeah, everybody's salivating. <laughs>
zealous for Christ. And so I challenged him. We both were in my kitchen, and he was, oh, and I'm on. And, and, and it was like, okay, I told Chelsea we need to get back down a little bit. We just ran into him recently, and he has left the Baptist church because he said they're not seeking truth, and he wants to know where I go to church. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if he's, like, fully ready, you know, but mm -hmm. he wants to start having more fellowship and he's looking and I see like where you're saying that sometimes people are so zealous that it's hard for them to let go of some things that they've held on to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I see that zealous it takes a break. so excited that we might be able to, to Yeah. Yeah, because we recently back to fellowship and it's like man, he's hungry. He's right there. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the other thing too, if we acquire zeal for God's word, his Torah, his commandments yes. prior to being broken we can actually do a great deal of damage with that zeal. It's important that brokenness is an important part of, part of the equation in there. Okay. Um, all right. One more question, and we'll go to lunch. No other questions? Somebody, somebody has a question, but they're scared of raising their hand because they know lunch is on. Everyone want to? <laughs> all right, let's do uh, the bless, blessing over Kiddush. And we'll say the blessing over the fruit of the vine. Oh, cool. Interesting. All right. Set the blessing with the fruit of the vine. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu <laughs> 